Hello to those listening, and welcome to our podcast on Modeling Minorities. We are Asian American women, friends who met in college, and daughters of immigrants. These are the conversations we're having, or wish we were having, with our husbands, friends, families, and coworkers. Hi, everyone. This week, we are going to be exploring the topic of allyship. What is allyship? What does it mean to be an ally? What is required of us as we continue on the journey of allyship? Because what we're going to explore today is the fact that allyship is not necessarily a destination, right? It's it's definitely a journey and a journey that potentially is a lifelong one. This week, we're joined by our, our friend, Liz. I met Liz through Travis because they were coworkers. And Liz I remember when I first met you, I had come to visit your office and you were the friendliest. And I was just like, who is this amazing person? And Travis was like, she's the heart and soul of this entire company. Oh, that's so sweet. I would have said the same thing about Travis. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's been great getting to know Jess through Travis. Um, I think one of my favorite early memories of Jess was one time we went out after work for drinks at uh, the frying pan in New York. And it was a beautiful day and we were hanging out there for a couple of hours and they were like, yeah, we, we don't want to start a family because we like doing this. And then like <laughs> a year and a half later, so they had Andy and we're just the most excellent parents. And I remember being like, yeah, like that's the type of person I want to be like really fun, but also a like killer parent. This is great. <laughs> so they've just been my parent idols ever since. <laughs> Liz, I think the last time I saw you was at a pub crawl every year for Jess and Travis's wedding anniversary. They host an awesome pub crawl through New York City, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there are many stories of like meeting me and hanging out with me that center around drinking. So this is probably <laughs> <isn't> a coincidence. <laughs> so Liz is a white woman and we've checked with her. She's comfortable with us referring to her as a white woman. <laughs> and that actually brings up a point about in this podcast, we often refer to white people as white people. <laughs> How do you feel about that term? Honestly, like, I I guess it sounds kind of awkward, like just talking about white people um, in general using that terminology. But then like, if you stop and think about it, like, what else would you really call us? Like, we are white people. Like, it's it's just the most <laughs> inclusive and like accurate term. I guess you could say like, white Americans or I don't know, white women or white men. But I think white people is probably the most inclusive way that you could go about it. I had heard some people didn't like us using the term white people, which I found interesting. And it made me wonder, and I would just love your personal opinion. Obviously, you're not speaking on behalf of all white people, but I wonder if it's because white people typically don't get called white people, whereas we hear, oh, Asians or black people or any kind of other minority group everyone's kind of grouped together. Do you think that could be why some people might be offended by us just referring to people as white people? Yeah, I think that's pretty spot on. Actually, now that you mentioned it, (laughs) really the first association when you say white people to me, just sort of viscerally is thinking about white people versus Native Americans and how white people came and like stole the land. Like that's kind of the association that I have with that terminology, because I think that is kind of one of the only situations in which people use the term white people. But I wouldn't be surprised if this became a more, you know, frequent phenomenon now that we're talking about race as a society and a community more openly. I just think people aren't really used to it yet. 
white people aren't used to it yet. <laughs> white people aren't used to it yet in particular. <laughs> what was your life like pre-New York City? So growing up, it was interesting because I was talking about this somewhat recently with my parents and they were telling me that when they, so they initially met and got married in New York City and then they moved out to the suburbs. And when they moved to the suburbs, they were very conscious about trying to choose a town where there was a little bit more, at least economic diversity. So they wanted to live and be around people with kids who were of varying socioeconomic statuses. Unfortunately, the suburbs became quite popular to New York commuters right around that time. And so the housing prices went up, they tended to push those less well-off groups out. And so it ended up becoming a very homogenous environment. But it was interesting to hear from them that like that was something that they had actually considered and tried to build into our childhood. It just wasn't very effective. And so I grew up in this town that was predominantly white, predominantly people of like a certain socioeconomic status. And then my parents decided to send me to a private middle school and high school. You had to apply. It was relatively expensive. It was definitely a much more like filtered group, I would say. So that was kind of the backdrop for everything. Why did your parents decide to put you into a private high school? Or was it a choice that you yourself wanted? Their like ultimate goal for me was to get into a good college. That was kind of the goalpost for them for my entire childhood, like most parents, I would assume. At that point, we could afford it. And so I think they kind of felt like it was something they should do because they were able to in order to give me an advantage. Where did you go to school after high school? Where did you go to college? I went to Haverford College. Uh, it's a small liberal arts school right outside of Philadelphia. What did you think about the liberal arts system? Because Jess and I both went to liberal arts colleges, which is where we met. So what did you think? Haverford was a great place for me. And I think any sort of small liberal arts college would have been a great place for me. It was particularly interesting coming out of my private high school because I honestly loved my High school experience. I was so sad to leave my friends. I had nothing but positive things to say about it the whole way through. And then pretty much as soon as I got to Haverford, maybe like a week or two into school, I was like, oh, wow, that was kind of a messed up situation I was in. Like, I, I think one of the things to your point, Terry, about the liberal arts education that I really liked is that it encourages you to really think for yourself and to really consider your own opinions and your own like paths to resolution and paths to problem solving. Whereas my experience in high school was much more regimented and sort of predetermined. I think the other thing that I really appreciate about Haverford is that it really fosters the sense of community because you're constantly having discussions about your opinions, you're learning how to ingest and reflect on and respond to other people's opinions. And I think that just fosters this sort of mutual respect among students. And I kind of try to bring that to any team or group that I'm in now. Mm -hmm. I think for me, my race is something that I always thought about, but I went to college. I think that's where I really started to learn who I was as a person. So I'm just wondering like how you being a white woman and going to a liberal arts college, like how did, how did that work out for you? What, <laughs> what, what did that mean? Or did it, did it mean anything? I think I started reflecting on my own privilege, I guess, um, in terms of my race and my cultural identity and my you know gender identity, probably like halfway through college when I started taking classes that really probed more into different groups and different like ways of thinking. And I think I especially became 
like hyper aware of my gender and my race and all of that as I was applying to jobs. Um, so I was an econ major with a Spanish minor. Actually, it was a concentration in mathematical economics. And so as you can that imagine, there are- so fancy, Liz. Like, I don't even know what that means, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> it basically means like not behavioral economics, more like statistics economics. Um, so even fancier than we yeah, thought. Yeah. Even, <laughs> even more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a challenge, um, but it was I found it really interesting. I love working with numbers. I'm definitely very nerdy in that way. And as you can imagine, like when we went to college, there just weren't a ton of women in that area. And that's why right now we're in a deficit of like women engineering managers, because there are no women who are like senior enough in engineering to be managers, which is, you know, a whole separate issue. But I I was applying to jobs. I was often the only woman in a set of finalists who were going to these interviews for consultancy firms, investment banks, research institutions. And so that's when I became sort of hyper aware of my situation. And that's when I started kind of questioning my participation as a woman and whether I was playing into this boys club or whether I was like really representing myself as someone who was different and had different perspectives and opinions. How did you reconcile like all these different ways you could play into the industry stereotypes? I ended up accepting a job at an investment bank and it was a job in global markets, which was a combination of sales, trading and research. And that was kind of an interesting opportunity for me to reflect because a lot of most of the people that I was hanging out with were people who were interested in sales and trading, like very social, very interested in interacting with people on a daily basis. But upon reflection, I realized that I was most interested in the sort of technical aspect of things, the more mathematical and research focused side of things. And so I ended up accepting opportunity on that side of the business. And it just floored people. But it was really surprising to me to have to kind of make that stand because, you know, it was the 2000s and like, we should all be past that at some point. So it was, it was a very eye-opening experience for me. You definitely revealed people's unconscious biases just by being yourself. Definitely true. (laughs) I think that's actually a really good segue into what we want to talk about today, which is allyship. So how did you first start thinking about allyship? Like how did that even enter your consciousness as a thing? Yeah, absolutely. So my journey was probably started more recently than I would have liked it to. From my view, allyship is opening yourself up to understanding other people's situations and learning from them how they want you to respond. So it's not necessarily like following a rule book or following like specific guidelines as to how to interact with people. It's really just trying to be a compassionate listener and to get a better understanding of someone's background and preferences so that you can do a better job of not only responding to them, but also advocating for them in cases where you can tell that their needs aren't being met. So interesting. And it sounds like you've already kind of been thinking about allyship and also just thinking about how people might be stereotyped a certain way just through your personal work experience. 
Yeah, I I first started working on allyship as part of workplace training. I started in one of our first allyship programs where we really were just learning how to like be a good partner to people in our workplace. And I found that training to be eye-opening. I thought of myself as a pretty good, strong ally who was approachable and advocated for people. And I just learned about all of these different ways that I was also part of the problem. And that kind of opened my eyes to other opportunities. And one example is I started looking into how to uh, make myself more socially aware of the way that I treat people of different weights and sizes. There was very much a stereotype of to be successful, you have to be this really thin person. And that was kind of always the ideal that I had been taught. And so I was just learning a lot about like the health at every size movement and how to talk to people about weight and how to appropriately describe people of different weights. I really enjoyed exploring different aspects of allyship because I'm a people manager and I'm now raising a family and I want to make sure that in my interactions with other people, I'm doing a good job of modeling how we should be talking to people and including people in conversations and making people feel like they are comfortable enough to express their true opinions because I think that's kind of the only way that we can really effectively work together and live together and grow together. And so I started doing a little bit of research on my own, just kind of reading articles in certain places um, about certain groups that I had never really thought about. Yeah. When we first launched this podcast, I think it required a lot of vulnerability for you to be like, I had never even heard of the term model minority. And that's amazing for you to be willing to seek out resources and being open to learning and to being told you're wrong or that your preconceived notions were limited. That's really inspiring for me as I'm on my journey uh, of being an ally and how I coexist with people of other identities as well. Yeah, I'm definitely not shy about expressing my feelings that I'm playing catch up in terms of um, learning how to be a better ally and learning about different ways in which I'm not being considerate of or, or just not like pursuing knowledge about other groups of people. But I think what I've really appreciated about the podcast is that, you know, we are all kind of around the same age, like from the same-ish area, like with similar-ish growing up life stories. And I just feel like there are so many aspects of my life that y'all have addressed that I'm now seeing from a totally different perspective. And I've thought about it repeatedly, actually, since I listened to it first. Um, but when I forget if it was Terry or Jess, you were talking about how when someone described a person to you, um, like this person is a woman, this person is athletic, whatever, I realized that I've never noticed that I always picture the person as white and as sort of a Barbie and Ken type of white person. And there are so many things that are wrong with that. And that's probably going to be like the last thing to go away in terms of the work that we have to do to to get over that. It just takes so much focused effort that it's, mm -hmm. you know, unless you're like really committed to retraining yourself, it's, it's going to be pretty challenging. Right. right. Yeah. Liz, just do what we do. Just imagine a blob. Like, <laughs> like amorphous, non-person thing, just like headless. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Ideally headless. That would be great. Perfect. But then I really liked what your point was about when you brought about size. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm not imagining people of different sizes. Like it's a very standard. And by standard, uh, standard, I'm already doing like, that's yeah. a mistake too, right? There's no 
standard necessarily who right. defined the standard oh my gosh Liz when you were like this person in my mind who's successful is thin I was like oh my gosh guilty like I definitely envision like a very fit person who does a lot of expensive workout classes and right. it's like this person's dressed a certain way and oh my gosh I have a lot of work I have to do as well <laughs> to unlearn that yeah, yeah. There's just so much that we've been trained to kind of subconsciously picture that it's going to be a years long, lifelong journey. <laughs> I mentioned to Jess the other day when we were hanging out that Terry's story about Michelle Kwan being one of her role models. Like Michelle Kwan was absolutely a role model for me too, but the race aspect of it never factored into it for me at all. And like her being Chinese American was like a, a fun fact that I just never really considered about her identity. Um, it was more about her being a figure skater and, and in later years her, about her being a really strong volunteer. She's on the board of the Special Olympics. She went to business school and is this like kick-ass, you know, politically savvy advocate and just like a, a badass woman. But it was so interesting then to see it from the perspective of she's a Chinese American of immigrant parents. And I'm also a huge fan of to all the boys I've loved before. It's just a, such a heartwarming story. But that was another thing that like I loved and, and that I've watched several times, but like I've never really focused on the Asian American aspect of it and the fact that they presented that so well. And then it got me thinking about some other Asian American media. I'm currently watching Killing Eve and Sandra Oh's character is an Asian American living in London. And my husband was telling me recently about how there are so many aspects of her character that she had to fight really hard for and, and advocate for as they present her as a, a Korean American. And there are just certain things, for example, that like she said that she, no Korean American would ever do in her kitchen. And so they couldn't put those in the show. So it's been so interesting to see a lot of my current and past experiences from a different perspective that I, I hadn't really like focused on or explored before. That is so interesting, but it, it's almost like you had race blindness. Oh yeah. Like, right? Where it's like you would see someone and be like, I love that person's personality or I love this character because they're in a movie or a TV show that you like, but you weren't identifying them as Asian. Right? Yeah. Whereas my race is like the first thing I think about all the time in every situation. It really stunned me that other people don't. Mm -hmm. Right? Because it also meant I was blind in my own way because I wasn't allowing for other people not even thinking about it. Yeah. And what I find really interesting is that this quote unquote blindness that Terry mentions, like you connected with Michelle Kwan as a role model for very valid reasons, right? And we would connect with Michelle Kwan for probably the same overlapping reasons, but also the fact that she's Asian. Mm -hmm. And so we connect with a movie for many of the same reasons, but also additional reasons. I'm wondering if you didn't acknowledge their race, did you also not acknowledge that you had similarities with somebody of a different race? Yeah, I guess I think a lot of that goes back to the way that I was taught about race and equality. I feel like when I was growing up, at least in, in my schools, the message was very much like, we're all the same, like, don't see race. If you do, then, you know, that's a bad thing. And if you treat people differently because of their race, then that, obviously that's a bad thing. And so I feel like I was kind of taught to be 
race blind. And like that was the proper way to respond to people who were of a different race. It kind of seems like the message was don't consider their race and don't consider their backgrounds and the differences that exist between you and like don't appreciate the fact that they are coming from a different place, which is now work that I feel like I have to kind of undo and then build back up that understanding in a very different way. And so to your point, Jess, like I think it's something that I have to do a better job of when I do connect with people of a different race is like be a little bit more proactive about understanding where they came from and wanting to learn a little bit more about how their journey was different from mine. My curiosity is also just like being able to extrapolate your connection with a smaller piece to a broader group. Cause I'm like, okay, I connect with this white person's story. So I do have like connections with white people, mm -hmm. but what I actually want to work on is reading more black stories, mm -hmm. you know, reading more Hispanic stories, because right now I don't think I do a good job of that. And I do want to connect with those stories so that I can find my way to connect with those groups as well. Yeah, um, I was doing a little bit more of that this past year because I, I had a baby in January. So I was pregnant during the pandemic of last year. And during that time, there were so many stories coming out about how Black women who are pregnant were just suffering exponentially more than white women in during the pandemic, but also just in general. And so that was a really interesting opportunity for me to start reading about some of their stories and just understanding how their experiences and the like types of care that they have available to them are just so drastically different from what I'm used to as a white woman in New York City. And so, yeah, I definitely hear you on that front. Liz, you sound so comfortable being uncomfortable. Like as we're having this conversation, sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't know if I should ask her that. And every question I ask, I feel you're like, yep, ask me anything. I want to talk about it. How, how are you so amazing, first of all? Um, but secondly, like what advice would you give someone else who is maybe just starting to read about allyship, starting to read about other people's experiences that are not their own? How did you get to this place? Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm glad that that's how it seems to you. <laughs> I, I think I am comfortable being uncomfortable, mostly because I fully accept the fact that I am often in the wrong about these things. And rather than choosing to be offended or choosing to be defensive about that in reaction, I think it's more productive for myself, for the person that I'm interacting with, and, and just for us as a a whole society for me to just kind of admit when I don't know what's going on or admit when I know that I'm wrong and just be open to learning. I'm always just interested in learning more, learning how to be a better contributor to my community. And so I think that's really what I focus on when I'm admitting wrong or admitting ignorance. And so I think that that's kind of a big step. I also learned a lot in my first allyship training from one of my coworkers who he's a very fit person and is very focused on his food intake. And he said, oh, are you really going to eat all of those carbs? And that was an example of an inappropriate comment. And um, the person who was you know, eating those carbs was offended. And he just came out to the whole room and was like, I had no idea. And rather than like being mad at him about that or thinking less of him because of that, I thought it was really brave of him to admit that. And he was visibly more careful about the way that he talked about his food around the team after that. And so after seeing that example, I was like, 
yes, like this is this is the proper way to try to admit that you're wrong and become a better ally. I think also now there are just so many resources out there about how to be a better ally in so many different contexts and for so many different people. Like personally, I always feel more comfortable if I've done a little bit of research and a little bit of homework to help sort of ground me in what I should be reacting to or how I should be reacting. And so I I would say like if if people out there are uncomfortable in a given situation, it's totally fine to just pause and take time to do some research and reflect and then go back to a person or a group and say like, this is what I've learned. Like, can we have a different discussion about this now? Yeah, that's amazing. I think about my own past missteps and I'm thinking about like, oh, wow, now that I know more, I probably, I understand why what I did before probably was incomplete or flat out wrong. And so when you're thinking about pausing and reflecting, is there anything that comes to mind in terms of an example, like say from your childhood or from work that you you wish you had the opportunity to have dug in more or been a better ally? Had you known what the term was even back then? I know it is a recent thing for all of us, in fact. Yeah, definitely. I I think probably most of my examples would come from high school because that was when I was at my most ignorant <laughs> in high school. My best friend was Asian American and then of my other, you know, five closest friends, three of them were Indian American. So, I actually was friends with a pretty diverse group of ladies, but to your point earlier about racial blindness, like that rarely came to mind for me. And a lot of that was because our high school, again, was like very homogenous and was very encouraging of people to be a certain way and to kind of act a certain way. And that certain way was like a very sort of country club culture. Like it was dressing really preppy, you know, eating certain things for lunch, presenting yourself in a certain way, talking a certain way. And so it was really easy to just kind of forget about people's cultural identities because we were all just kind of conforming to this this high school norm. But looking back on things in high school, given that I had a pretty diverse group of friends, like I really wish that I had known to appreciate their backgrounds a little bit more and to sort of ask them more about their lives at home. Because it really did feel like I was seeing a very different version of them than they were probably comfortable presenting to their families. And and it now just sort of feels like I never got to know that side of them. And that's really sad to me because I considered myself to be a really good friend of theirs and to be, you know, supportive and understanding and to be compassionate and really there for them. And, and I'm disappointed in myself that I never really even considered trying to, to breach that whole different side of them. Liz, I love what you shared because to be totally honest, I almost was like tearing when you were saying that because I realized growing up, I probably did the same where I hid parts of myself from people who were not Asian because in the back of my mind, I just thought, oh, it'll be too much work to explain it or they won't get it or it's going to alienate us from each other because my my culture at home is so different. And I think you're right when you talked about earlier, when we were growing up, we were told everyone should assimilate to this ideal. Mm-hmm. And I think I felt the same way too, of like, oh, I should assimilate. That's the right thing to do because I'm now in the US and my parents immigrated here. And now the new conversation around allyship is to meet people where they are. And in fact, assimilation is not what we should be doing. We should actually be reaching out to people who are different and try to learn about them and to meet them where it's more comfortable for them. 
I love that. And not to let you or us even off the hook necessarily, but in looking back on your high school experience, like I love Terry's point about like meeting people where they are, because mm-hmm. I don't think I knew how to necessarily integrate my identities when I was in high school either. So had you been like, tell me more about your Asian life. I want to come over every day and figure this out. Like that probably wouldn't have been something that they would have wanted to share or something that they even thought was significant to share necessarily. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, this is just my parents. I don't know. They're boring. But it's, you know, you're a teenager and you're trying to figure it out. And so so definitely really appreciate that reminder that like it is about just making sure that you're somebody that people feel comfortable with mm-hmm. should they choose to take that step. But also, t- totally, Jess, like to your point, like back in high school, I was embarrassed to bring Asian food to school, like when my mom to pack my lunches. So there was a sense of trying to hide it intentionally. So I definitely don't fault people I grew up with for not making effort because why would they if I like at school pretended that I was basically white? And um, I feel like I would get defensive. I feel like I would just be like, mm-hmm. I'm just like you. Yeah. Like, oh, you totally. Right. Like calling out difference back then mm-hmm. felt more like an attack or bullying. Whereas right. now it's like, it's flipped, right. Of like, how dare you not acknowledge that my culture is different and that <laughs> I speak other languages. And this reminds me of a, a current event. I reached out to a bunch of my coworkers and just the fact that I reached out, people were writing back and saying they were so moved. I think people just want to hear from others and like, they want to be shown that other people care and that they're thinking about them. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be like, do you want to talk about race? But it could just be, I recognize that you are in a very different situation than the one that I'm in. And I want to open the line of communication in case you want to talk about it. Right. Yeah. I love that approach. I surprisingly, I feel like sometimes it's easier at work than it is with friends or like in the personal Mm -hmm. world, because you're kind of used to a more, formal conversation at work. Like I do this with my team every week where I'm like, I want to check in and see how you're doing. How is your mental health now that we're working from home? For example, I'd feel in a lot of cases less comfortable just out of the blue asking my friends about that. I feel like at work, I kind of have more standard channels to to discuss these things, especially now that we're doing like allyship trainings at work. That kind of creates these opportunities to as Terry mentioned, like open the conversation and kind of let people know that you're interested in talking about these things and and want to learn how to help. But I find that like sometimes in, in personal context, especially if you know someone, but don't know someone that well, like it's really tricky to figure out what they're comfortable with and how to broach a certain subject. And I still haven't quite figured out the right way to go about that. Yeah. Cause the tricky thing is Are you doing it to make yourself feel better or are you doing it to genuinely check in on this person? Sometimes I talk myself out of it because I'm like, I think this is just to make myself feel better. I think we overthink things sometimes. Yeah, I think that's true. I think sometimes people feel like they're, you know, trying to be like a hashtag ally and like they're just doing it to like seem like they're a really Is that a thing? Hand hand signal? I never knew the hand signal for hashtag. I think it's from SNL, right? Where someone did like the two fingers and was like hashtag whatever. Uh Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Liz, I feel like I've already learned so much from you in this very short conversation. So thank you. I'm just curious, like, what are you reading these days? What are you watching? Like, what are you learning from? Do you have any recommendations for us? 
Yeah. Um, so I am actually participating in an anti-racism challenge at work. It's like a four week, five week long challenge where we have a curriculum of different readings and like YouTube videos um, that we watch throughout the week that were um, a conversation with and then um, a different ethnic group on race. So a conversation with Native Americans on race, a conversation with Asian Americans on race. And they're all like six or seven minutes long. And I found them to be just really interesting little like introductions to how people are thinking about their own race and how they're thinking about white people perceiving their race. And then um, we participate in a discussion at the end of the week. And so I thought for people who are interested in just sort of an intro to the conversation, I thought this was a good way to kind of start diving in and learning a bit more. Awesome. I am so amazed by how productive this conversation felt. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no, thank you so much. I honestly didn't know that I had so much to say about (laughs) about all of this. So thank you for like opening the conversation and for being so encouraging of like reflection and and further discussion on all these topics. It, It definitely means a lot and helps a lot. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you for listening. This is really meant to be a conversation, and we'd love to hear from you. Email us at hello at unmodelingminorities.com. Unmodeling Minorities will be released every Thursday. Hope you join us next time.